Welcome to the Print Shop and this week's podcast of Dad's Hometown Memories. My first segment, I want to dwell on several items that came to my attention this year. Brad Smith, a resident of the Dunville area and a very accomplished writer who has a number of books on the market, which I have read, sent me a message regarding history he is very much interested in. Brad is looking for information regarding his great-great-grandfather, Robert Smith. The story goes that the three Smith brothers married three Wardell sisters. This would have been in the early 1800s, and Brad recalls that Robert was buried in St. Anne's Cemetery. Also, it is believed that the Wardell farm was located on the lake at Beamsville. First off, I want to put in a plug for Brad Smith, a writer born and raised in southern Ontario. He has worked as a farmer, a signalman, insulator, truck driver, bartender, school teacher, maintenance mechanic, roofer, and a carpenter. He lives in an 88-year-old farmhouse on the north shore of Lake Erie. I have been to one of his book fairs, which he promoted here in Smithville. Now going back to the time when the first settlers came to this area and the peninsula, there were no longer any neutral villages left, nor were there Iroquois here. It was the Mississaugas who had laid claim to the area. British policy, as laid down in 1763, specified that private individuals were not allowed to buy land directly from the natives. All purchases then must be made by the crown. So it was the government of King George III, which on May May 22, 1784, purchased the peninsula and a large area to the west of it from the Mississauga. The agreement was made with the Sachems and War Chiefs and principal women of the Mississauga Indian Nation, who received the sum of 1,180 pounds, seven shillings and four pence, and then became possible for the settlers to acquire Indian lands. The Indians in the St. Anne's area, credited with having referred to Adam Snyder's wife as St. Anne, and thus provided the eventual name for the hamlet, may have been a small band of the Mississauga from one of their scattered fishing and hunting camps here and there throughout the wilderness. But it was with the Six Nation Indians who had come to the Grand River Reserve that the settlers of what is now West Lincoln had most contact. In 1784, Governor Haldeman, governor of the British colony of Quebec, had acknowledged that the service of the Indian allies to the British cause in the American Revolution by granting the tribe to the Six Nations a strip of land six miles wide on each side of the Oasa or the Grand River from mouth to its source. An 1811 map shows a path joining the property of John Dockstater on the Chippewa, Lot 1, Concession B, F, Gamesboro, with the Grand River. Joseph Dockstater of Caister was a highly esteemed interpreter and attended meetings of the Indian councils. 
The early history of the present township of West Lincoln is enmeshed with the Loyalist story. With the arrival of the Niagara of the white Loyalists, Haldeman realized they too must be compensated for their losses. The lands purchased from the Mississauga Indians must accommodate these displaced persons as well as Indian Loyalists. This parcel of land included what we know as the Niagara region. Later, from Lake Ontario to the Indian Line, the southern boundary of Caister became Lincoln County. Reverend J. Hiltz, writing of the Loyalists in 1885, comments these people formed the nucleus of a distinct nationality and one that will make itself heard among the nations a nationality that is different from the American and English type, but one that shall exhibit the best traits of both of these nations. Many of the settlers coming into what we know as West Lincoln used a 20-mile stream and valley, so named because of the distance of the mouth of the creek from the Niagara River. Those coming to the southern and central parts of the township used the Chippewa, Welland River, and trails along it. To disperse the new arrivals inland, Simcoe in 1792 appointed Lieutenant David William Smith as Surveyor General for Upper Canada. August Jones, who had been surveying for the colony of Quebec, joined Smith and his department and surveyed parts of Gamesborough and Grimsby townships. The surveyors were to divide the townships into 200-acre lots with a road allowance of one chain, or 66 feet, every fifth lot in Caister. In Gainsborough, these allowances were less regularly spaced. The concession lines were to be run as straight as possible, leaving one chain for a road allowance between each concession. The first surveying done in the fourth township from the mouth of the Welland River was named Gamesboro and was by Augustus Jones between April 22 and May 9 of 1790. The rest of what we know as West Lincoln was still not surveyed and in September of 1792 the following petition was forwarded to Governor Simcoe. The petition of the inhabitants of a Chippewa Creek which reads as follows, To His Excellency John Graves Simcoe, Esquire, Governor and Commander-in-Chief of the Province of Upper Canada, Chancellor and Vice-Admiral of the same. The humble petition of sundry inhabitants settled on the land on the head of the Chippewa Creek and the Twenty Mile Creek in the county of Lincoln humbly showeth that whereas your petitioners by leave of the commanding officers and others whom we conceived had power to grant such leave have settled themselves on his majesty's lands within what is called the Indian purchase and not really surveyed either in townships or in single lots some of whom have made considerable improvements at great labor and expense and whereas by some late transactions find themselves debarred from privileges that others enjoy and are seated on lands that are not surveyed. Therefore, we, your petitioners, do humbly pray, Your Excellency, that will take our cause into consideration and grant such relief 
in the premises as you in wisdom shall see or cause doth merit and your petitioners bound as in the duty will ever pray. September 7th, 1792. The following were the names of petitioners which I feel brings out the history of some families who were the pioneer settlers. They are John Wrong, Jonas Carl, Nathaniel Griffin, James Conley, Isaiah Griffin, Henry Johnson, Christian Michelle, John McDonnell, Peter McDonnell, John Cochran, William McDonald, Henry Dockstader, John Dockstader, Peter Babard, Nicholas X. Moray, Peter McDonald, William McDonald, Randall McDonald, Christa McDonald, Joseph Dockstader, Mattis Smith, Zadam Smith, Thomas North, Richard Griffin, Smith Griffin, and these were spelt with as G-R-I-F-F-E-N. Jonathan Griffin, Archibald Black, Arthur Gray, Abraham Griffin, Abraham Merritt, Richard Griffin Jr., Thomas Harris, Jonathan Lane Sr., Jonathan Lane Jr., Alexander Lane, Adam Dockstader, Casper Springsteen, <clears throat> Robert Comfort, Joseph Lane, Thomas Dick Bear, and John Block. This petition <clears throat> apparently had the desired effect as of November 15th of the same year, instructions were issued to Deputy Surveyor Grant to serve the remainder of, the, of Gamesboro. So that is a little history of what it was like when settlers first came to this area and settled our little hamlets and villages. Now fast forward to the 1950s and 60s. This is a letter I received from my good friend and former Smithville resident, Richard Rick Frith. Rick now lives in Ottawa and is retired enjoying life. Rick has been following the podcast and was surprised when he read the one about his father, Henry Bud Frith, and the establishing of the industrial park here in Smithville. Bud and Joan Frith were the best of friends of Gene and myself over many years. After the passing of Bud too early in life, Joan sought employment and was hired on as an employee of General Factories where she worked with Gene for many years. After a number of years passed, Joan met up with Harley Switzer and their friendship with Gene and I lasted for many years. Now I want to read this letter Rick Frith sent me about his time growing up in Smithville, and hope you enjoy. Growing up around the THB. My dad, Henry Frith, or Bud, as everyone knew him then, worked as a station agent at the Smithville THB station from about 1951 until his death in 1965. He worked from 6 a.m. 
to 2 p.m. and then another longtime railway employee, Charles Charlie Hawkins, took over. My mom, Joan Frith, later Joan Switzer, worked as a secretary and bookkeeper for several Smithville businesses and schools over the years. As a result, I often went to work with Dad in the summer when, I, when school was out and when I was between 6 and 11 years old. One of the great things about growing up in the 1950s and 1960s was that parents didn't find the need to supervise their kids as closely as they do now. So when I went to work with my dad, I had the freedom to stay in the office with him or to wander about the rail yard just as long as I checked in from time to time. I had some great adventures there. A couple of times, Dad convinced the engineer to let me stand in the locomotive while he shouted, shunted cars around the yard. And once, a railway electrician who maintained the signals and telegraph lines along the tracks let me ride with him in, on a little yellow gas car called a jigger. We went all the way to Dunville, and it was one of the great adventures of my childhood. I remember the sounds associated with the railway, the humming of the wires that ran by the tracks, the clanging of the train bells, and especially the clatter of the telegraph. I have some old tax returns that Dad filed, and he always identified his profession as a telegrapher. A telegrapher sent telegram messages by Morse code, a method of communications that was common before telephones were widely available. Back then, it was a skill that you needed to work at, work at at a railway station and one in which Dad took great pride. I remember sitting in the office when suddenly the telegraph would clatter. Dad would grab a pencil and a pad, plug in his telegraph machine called a bug, and responded with a special flourish that was his signature. All the telegraphers had one. The telegram then came down the wire in a staccato of dots and dashes, and Dad would translate the message into English. For a child, it was astonishing to watch and listen to. At that point, I kind of wanted to learn Morse code myself, but as I got a bit older, I realized that it wouldn't be a very useful skill now that people had telephones. Now people send their own telegrams via email. After Dad died, I had a few years away from the THB. Mom went to work full-time at General Factories, hitching a ride every day with her good friend, Jean Ecker, and we pressed on to the best we could. However, when I was 17, Mom was able to finagle me a summer job <clears throat> on the THB section gang, which they performed track maintenance. I ended up working there for four summers. In many ways, it didn't make much sense. Back then, I was five feet three inches tall <clears throat> and weighed all of 120 pounds. The other men were all big and very strong after many years of backbreaking work. I'm not sure how much use I was. However, I was lucky to have Ernie Lacey as my, in my corner. 
Ernie was the subforeman of the Smithville gang and being a good friend of my dad's. So if anyone gave me a hard time, they had to deal with Ernie. The foreman of the Smithville gang was Jack Tiley. I knew Jack and his wife Helen because they attended St. Luke's Anglican Church where my family went. Jack was a longtime railway employee and a great boss. He knew his business and the men knew that he would never ask them to, to do anything that he hadn't done himself many times before. It was very hard work. I remember the first day I came home soaked in sweat and with creosote stains from changing railway ties all up my arms. My mom asked me if I would wanted to quit, but I thought never entered my mind. This was a real man's work, and besides, I was making a huge salary of $3.10 per hour. I learned very quickly that you don't let creosote stay on your arms. That stuff really burns. I think part of Mum's plan was for me to see how hard physical labor was so I would be motivated to go on to college. But the plan almost backfired. I loved the railway and I really liked and respected the guys I worked with. And there was some talk that I might be suitable to train to, to run one of the big machines that were coming online to assist in laying track and changing ties. But it was Ernie to the rescue again. He put his big arm around me and said, Rick, I think you should get a job pushing a pencil. Well, I just retired from 35 years working for the federal government in Ottawa, and I have probably made enough pencil marks to go around the world a couple of times. My last memories of DHB came when I went to Ryerson Polytechnical Institute in Toronto. The only remaining passenger service was a little two-car train called Bud Car that went from Toronto to Buffalo and back a few times a week. Every couple of weeks, I would come home on Saturday morning to visit Mum and return to Toronto Sunday night. It was an enjoyable and quick trip, and I wonder why people abandoned rail transport so quickly in the 1960s. With gas prices the way they are now, the train looks like a pretty good deal. Rick Frith. That sums up my podcast for this time, and I wish you all well.